I'm really stoked about class today. I'm stoked about class because I think there are some important, fundamental principles that we as Christians bring into the world that we often do not know or understand. In some ways, the class that I'm beginning today and will take probably another two weeks to teach, are, uh, it, 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 these are items that, that we do not talk about as we should. These are items that are not typically taught. We don't find them generally discussed in the Baptist quarterly. We don't find them generally discussed. It's not something you've got time to do in a sermon. But these are extremely important ideas and concepts, especially in light of the culture in which we live and the state of knowledge that the Internet age has brought into our lives. So if you're here today, which most of you seem to be, I want to thank you for being here and I want to urge and encourage you to come for the next two classes as well. About 30% of our class comes about every three or four weeks and we kind of rotate them. That's fine. I mean, I generally would do that, you know, if I wasn't up here teaching. No, I'm joking. I want to urge you to come three weeks in a row because this is stuff we need. That's prelude to the lesson one. Prelude to the lesson two. There's some of what I'm going to teach that many of, not many, some of you may not agree with. I don't care. (laughs) I'm going to teach it anyway because I deeply and fervently believe in what I'm teaching. And if you do not agree with me, I honor and respect you, but I would ask that you consider whether or not this is worth changing your mind. Janet Seifert's already told me that she doesn't like part of this lesson, not in the sense that she thinks it's wrong, but it just leaves her a little uncomfortable. I don't know if that's an accurate way of describing what she said. But it leaves her uncomfortable. I think this lesson should leave many of us uncomfortable. But boy, I think it's important. It's so important that I'm not going to do it in one. I'm going to do it in three weeks. Because I really want to go into this in detail. And if it takes four weeks, we'll do four weeks. God. Faith. Or science. So let me set this in presenter view. There we go. All right. Look at that question itself. God, faith or science? Please understand, we live in a very competitive world. We learn competition real early. 
We learn to do competitive races. Uh, we play competitive sports. We play competitive games. We get into the business world, which is a competitive world. We're always looking for that extra boost, that little bit extra. By the way, that is the lawyer there, second from the right, who figured out how to tie the extra balloon on to get up just a little bit higher. Our economy is built on competition. The business of America is business. It's capitalism. It's, it's who's got the best product at the best price or delivers the best service. You know, we, we are a competitive people. Some would even say competition is in our DNA. Herbert Spencer was a British biologist, philosopher, uh, uh, a student of Charles Darwin, uh, uh, or at least a, a, a Darwinian follower, maybe more proper way to say it. He wrote a book, and in the 1869 or 79 version, I think, was the first edition, but Principles of Biology. And here's what he had to say. On page 444, he coined this phrase in section 165. This survival of the fittest, first time the word's used, phrases used that we know of, which I have sought to express in mechanical terms is that which Mr. Darwin has called natural selection or the preservation of favored races in the struggle for life. The idea of survival of the fittest, the Darwinians would tell you, is inherent in who we are, that those that are more fit for a particular environment will be the ones that thrive and continue to grow and develop where those that are less fit will not. In other words, competition is even down to the point of, of how we continue to grow and develop as people according to the Darwinians. I'm not sure, by the way, that that's accurate. But the point is we are, without a doubt, very competitive people. And so within the framework of this, it seems logical for us to put things against each other, to pit things in competition. Is it faith or is it science? As if those two are competing. Because that's just inherent in the way we think. We think things in competitive terms. And that's not right to do. So one of the, the most notable atheists in the world today is Richard Dawkins. And Richard Dawkins uh, published a, many books, but his book, The Selfish Gene, is one where he puts out this idea that faith is something that's the opposite of science. That faith and science are pitted against each other. He says faith is belief in the teeth of the evidence that science gives. If you were to put them on a teeter-totter, in his view, science is that heavyweight thing that we can be certain of and know. Faith is some wisp of a vapor that, 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 that has no real substance, that's for the disillusioned, that's for those who, who can't think straight, for those wishful thinkers and dreamers who stare in the face of evidence. And in a teeter-totter, 
they just can't measure up and they can't sustain life because they're not real. They're not based on reality, I should say. Well, I think that's an error. I think that's a big error. I think that's a horrible error. I think it's illogical. Now, here's your warning. I want to warn you, I am not a scientist. You've been put on fair notice. But I deal with scientists all day long. I got served 70 plus expert reports in the opioid litigation Friday night from some of the best doctors and scientists that money can buy. Sorry, showed a little bias there. I got served these reports. I deal with experts. I've, I've, got, I've put on people who are up for Nobel Prizes for, for coming up with leukemia treatments and cures. I, I've dealt with scientists who deal with every kind of issue you can deal with. And I not only deal with them to, to help me prove a case and to educate me and to teach me a case, but I deal with them to destroy them on cross-examination. Because they'll bring junk science into the courtroom. Or they'll play games with science. So I'm not a scientist. But that doesn't mean that we can't use our common sense and our brains to make good sense of these things. And I want to warn you, don't let anyone put blinders on you and mislead you. Like those horses that have the blinders so they don't get distracted and will go straight. People will try to put blinders on you and try to make you think faith and science are antagonists to each other. That they're in competition. That you've got to choose one or the other. This generally comes up in two areas that cause people panic or concern. And you just say stop on these two areas. But I want to explain to you these areas. It's going to take time. I won't get into all of the implications this week. This is why this lesson is going to take a couple of weeks to unfold. But the first area of concern or one of the two areas is the whole question of creation versus evolution. It's Mother's Day. I can remember mom was rocking Holly, who's the runt of the family. I mean, my baby sister. And, and I was eight, almost eight, when Holly was born. So I was probably around eight years old when this conversation took place. But I remember where we were seated, uh, where I was, mom was seated, and she was rocking Holly. And I wanted to know, Okay, so where do we come from? And mom tried to explain as best as she could that, you know, we come from mom and dad. Well, where do y'all come from? Well, that's grandmother and granddad. Well, where did they come from? And like a kid, I could just keep going back and back. And mom had the patience of Job to keep going back and back with me. And finally getting us to Adam and Eve. I said, well, where did they came from? Well, God made them. Well, where did God come from? 
Well, that's the thing about God. God didn't come from anything. That's why God is God. Well, I don't understand that. How can something not come from something and just automatically be there? And she said, in this created world, that cannot happen. And we have trouble understanding it because everything we know is something that is created. But that is what God is. God is the uncreated. Okay, that was good enough for me. I was ready to go out and play. Now, the evolutionists don't get away from that. They might be able to say, well, it's not Adam and Eve. They might say, okay, well, uh, uh, some primate, some distant cousin of humans and apes. Okay, well, where did that primate come from? Well, from another primate, from another primate, from another primate, from another primate. Finally, you're going to work your way past the primates. Ultimately, you can work your way back to a fish climbing out of the water, I guess. Ultimately, you can, where did the fish come from that made it out of the water? Well, mate, it came from, and finally, you're going to get back to the primordial soup here on this planet where the proteins decided in some nice way to coalesce into something that gets zapped by energy and somehow becomes life. We don't know exactly. Or maybe some of the uh, astrobiologists will say it came here from a comet or something that smashed into the earth, but then you've still got, well, all right, well, how'd the life come that was on the comet? Maybe you can chart it all back from there into where the proteins come from. Well, from the primordial soup. Well, where'd the soup come from? Well, ultimately, it was stardust that was all in one little bundle that kaboom and a big bang exploded into the universe. All right, well, where did the bundle come from? And so there, there are, you know, either way, we've got those types of discussions. And, and it's as if creation and evolution are at odds with each other. And I don't think biblically that they have to be. And so I want to talk about that, but it's not this week. There's another area, faith in medicine. Faith in medicine is one that, that, and, uh, that, that causes people consternation. Um, Edward Fudge, who's passed away, uh, uh, and I were walking to eat lunch one time in downtown Houston, and we walked past a man who was seated there with a cup, and he had no legs. His legs had been amputated. And Edward and said, Edward said to me, he said, man, I have such a great desire to go up to him and say, silver and gold have I none, but what I have give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. I, you, you read the Bible and you read about all, take the gospel of Matthew. The first chapter's genealogy, the birth of Christ. Then we move into the, the, you know, going to Egypt and coming back. And then we get into the ministry of, of Jesus, and it begins with John the Baptist's ministry. And after Jesus is baptized, he goes off into the wilderness to be tempted. He comes back, and he begins that tremendous sermon on the mount. It includes teaching the apostles how to pray, or his disciples how to pray. It, it's got, you know, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. I tell you, you know, this, that, and the other. 
magnificent Sermon on the Mount. Now, you've made it through seven chapters of Matthew. Chapter 8, the first one after the Sermon on the Mount, is the one of substance. But it's been forecasted already before the Sermon on the Mount with this overall statement of the ministry of Jesus. Matthew 4, 23, he went throughout all Galilee teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. By the way, a good passage to indicate that every in the biblical languages means a, a whole bunch. Okay. Every disease and every affliction among the people. And then you get to chapter 8 where it starts showing it. And the chapter starts out, he heals a leper. Then he heals a paralytic. And then there's a woman who's in bed infirmed with a fever and sickness. And he heals her and she gets up immediately. Then there's a crazy dude who's inhabited by demons. And he restores sanity. And oh, in the midst of all of that, he speaks to a storm and just calms it with his words. That's the miracle worker of Jesus in chapter 8. And you sit there and you say, well, okay. And when Jesus does this, he links it to faith with these passages. Go and let it be done to you as you've believed. I mean, what gives here? That's an incredible story. That is our faith. We believe that he's the great physician. We believe God can heal. We read about it over and over in the pages of this book, Old Testament and New. So in the field of medical literature, there's a a journal that now goes by a different name, but in the early 2000s it was called the Archives of Internal Medicine. And in January 10th of 2005, there was a study that was published, When Patients Choose Faith Over Medicine. And it was looking at the, the attitudes of doctors and how doctors deal with these patients and, and, and the conflict that doctors experience. So it followed and interviewed and worked with, I think it was 23 different doctors. But in the process of that, it revealed conflict between people who go to the doctor and, and the uh, uh, medical treatment and advice that the doctor gives. Look at this statement. The conflict introduced by religion is common. It occurs in three types of settings. The first setting are those where your religious doctrines directly conflict with medical recommendations, like Jehovah's Witnesses not wanting blood transfusions. The second are those where there's an area of extensive controversy within the broader society like uh, bringing a child to term if the child is going to die once the child is born and putting the mother through the risk of childbirth knowing the child has no chance of living outside the womb. That's an area of conflict that the doctors talk about. It's the third area, though, that I want to talk to you about. Settings of relative medical uncertainty in which patients choose faith over medicine, as if the two are at odds, as if the two are in competition. 
as if medicine is science, but faith is something greater. That, by the way, according to this article and study, is the largest category of problem that physicians encounter. And you look at it and, and, and you, you read the accounts and the physicians talked about patients who say they trust God more than they trust us. So they're going to refuse treatment. They give the example of a, of a woman who refused a colonoscopy which is where, where you go in rectally and you remove polyps. She refused it after a screening indicated hundreds of polyps because she and her daughter believed in the power of prayer. The exam shows hundreds of polyps that will develop into cancer if they're not removed and she won't go through the removal because she's going to pray about it instead and trust God. There are countless people who refused or delayed treatment for conditions. Just saying, it's in God's hands. I'm just not going to deal with it. I don't have to worry about it. It's in God's hands. There is um, uh, another set that refused important tests. Saying, quote, I know God will provide. I don't need that test. There was a lady who was diagnosed with breast cancer who declined treatment, saying instead she's simply going to pray about it. And the doctor was just full of angst, saying six months from now I will not be able to do for her what I could do for her today. All of this is the, the, the I'm, I'm, giving, I'm diagnosing the problem in a minute, but right now I'm setting out the symptoms. This is the problem. This idea, does God expect us to be people of faith or people of medicine and science? That's a bad question. That question buys into the Richard Dawkins and others of this world who argue that faith and science are opposite ends of a teeter-totter. That is not the biblical view. They are not opposite ends of a teeter-totter. If we do not have a biblical understanding of science and medicine, we are not doing what we should be doing in this world for the cause of Christ. That's my conviction. I want to say it again. I want this engraved in your heart. If we do not have a biblical understanding of science, we are not doing all we can be doing for the cause of God. That's why this is so important. That's why I'm bothering to teach this. That's why I'm, I'm, I want us to understand this. We're going to spend the three weeks on it. Well, I want to know, what does the Bible teach about science? I've told you the Bible's not a science textbook. It's not. But that doesn't mean it doesn't teach us about science. It does. Go back to Genesis. No, I'm not going back to Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Though that is what's up there. Barashit Elohim at Hashamayim Va'et. And it would say Ha'eretz, the earth, if we had it up there. But that's not where I'm going. I'm going to chapter 2. Garden of Eden. The Lord God took the man and he put him in the Garden of Eden 
to work it and keep it. Now, we don't know where the Garden of Eden actually was. Um, I don't know what it actually looked like. I know where the rumors are it was. (laughs) But I can't say with all definiteness that it was just inside the city limits of Lubbock. But I do know that the Lord God took the man and put him in a garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Look at those two words. Work and keep. Work, avad in the Hebrew is the verb. Avad means, the, 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 the word work means to, to you use it to till a field. You can use it to tend to a vineyard. Um, it's used as a, a, a the, the word for slave comes from it, Evid. Uh, it's used for um, uh, a servant. It's used for serving God. So when, when Adam is told to, to work the garden, to work the earth, he's being told to, to, to manage it, to tend to it, to do what needs to be done for it. And he's got the resources and he's got the ability before the fall to do that very thing. And that's what he's there to do. But he's not only to work it. He's also there to keep it. Keep it. The word that's translated keep is a Hebrew word. Uh, Shamar is the word. If you take Hebrew class, you learn it because it's the word that you use to learn many of your verb paradigms from. Shamar T, Shamar Ta, and you just learned out of ba 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 ba. It it's got a full range of semantic meaning. It means to guard something. It means to have responsibility for something. But inherent in the meaning, deep within the meaning, is the idea of watching something intently and intelligently and paying attention to it. And there are passages where the word is used. I want to show you a couple of them. Um, 1 Samuel 1.12. Let me just do it. Well, now I'll show you. See, here's my problem. I get so excited to teach this stuff that I cram it all in, and, and we're just gonna we're gonna take our time. This is so important. If I don't even get through all of today, we'll roll it into next week. Um, look at this. So here's the story. Um, this is the story of the mother Hannah, the mother of Samuel, ultimately. But right now she's a barren woman, and so she goes to pray before the Lord. And as she continued praying before the Lord, Eli who's the high priest, observed her mouth. Now, this word keep is in there. Shamar is in there. Right here. It means to look at something attentively. He observed her mouth. He looked attentively at what she was doing. In Isaiah chapter 21 and later in Isaiah where it talks about the watchman, the watchman, the watchman, the watchman. It's the same verb. It's the person who's keeping watch, who's being observant and attentive. So if we go back to the PowerPoint, what is it that Adam was being told to do? He's being told to be observant of nature. 
He's being told to watch it, to pay attention to it, to use his intelligence with it. He's being told to be educated about it. He's being told to understand it. A fundamental thing that the Bible teaches us about science is this. In this world that we live, we are to take responsibility. We're to watch nature intelligently and attentively and we're to tend to it. That's the first instruction we got. Don't say, well, yeah, but that was before the fall. Okay. So it was be fruitful and multiply. I mean, that doesn't mean we don't have to do it. So it was follow God and his commandments. So it was being made in his image. That's still our responsibility. We are to watch this world. We're to look at it. We're to observe it intelligently and attentively. We're to then, we're, we're to tend to it, to use it. This idea, take responsibility. Watch nature intelligently and attentively. That might ring a bell with you. It's fundamental to the scientific method. The first step of the scientific method is to observe. We observe. We hypothesize. We think about it. We test theories. We put them to work. And then we draw conclusions. That's the fate, basic four steps. And I know that philosophers of science debate the accuracy and the nuances of the scientific method. I understand all of that. But that's the core of science today is exactly what God told Adam to do. Take responsibility. Watch nature intelligently and attentively and tend to it. That, that is the scientific method. So what does the Bible teach us about science? It teaches us to use it, to develop it. But there's more to the story than this, too. And if we stop the story there, we're not doing this right. See, we know that God made a utopia. He put Adam and Eve there and made them responsible for the world, its animals, its creatures, and all the rest of this stuff. When Adam and Eve fell, they lost, I'm convinced, abilities. They lost uh, uh, physically. Their bodies were altered. Their minds were altered. But the earth itself was no longer what it was meant to be. The lesson from Genesis chapter 3 is that the beauty of this world was marred by sin. God says it to, to, to Adam and Eve. God says to, him, to the woman, he says, in pain you're going to bring forth children. And to Adam he says, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you're going to eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it will bring forth for you. By the sweat of your brow, you're going to eat your bread. Till you return to the dust. Because you came from dust and to dust you're going to return. So God made the world to be a garden of Eden. They made it to be paradise. Sin has marred the beauty of the world. 
Sin has brought curse. It's brought pain. It's brought destruction. It's brought agony. It's brought blood, sweat, and tears. Science is our tool to combat the fallen world. Science is what God has given us to wage war on the ravages brought on by sin in this fallen world. I gave you this slide last week. I asked the question, where is God in the midst of evil? And the answer was, God's working to bring good from evil. That is what God is doing. That is the work of God, to bring good from evil. Now, if that's the work of God, and science is our tool to be doing that, shouldn't we be doing the work of God? Shouldn't we be seeking to bring good from evil? When someone is hurting, shouldn't we try to help them with their pain? When someone is sick, shouldn't we be offering them medicine and care? When someone is hungry, shouldn't we be helping them figure out how to eat? We live in a world where people are destined for death. But faith and science are on the same side of the teeter-totter. The other side of the teeter-totter is what this world is like. The ravages of sin. Cancer. Disability. Broken relationships. Lack of discipline. Mosquitoes, roaches. There are things in this world that are not good, that God does not like, that are not part of His design. And science is a tool for the faithful to use who are convinced that God did not leave us in this world with a pat on the back saying, Go be warm and filled. I'm going to tell this story again next week. You may have already heard the story. I'm just warning you, I may tell it the next three weeks in a row. Big flood. Big, big flood. Everybody's told to evacuate the neighborhood. Big flood. It's coming. One fellow decides, hey, I believe in God. I'm going to pray about it. I'm not going to evacuate. Flood waters come. His house starts flooding. Somebody comes by in a boat. Hey, get in, man. Flood's not over. He says, now I've prayed about it. I trust God. I'm going to be okay. See ya. Floodwaters rise. He's got to go to his second floor. It's a two-story house. Goes to the second floor. Another boat comes in. Hey, buddy, get in the boat. The waters aren't done. Your house is, is going under. He says, no, I've prayed about it. I'm going to be okay. See ya. God's going to take care of me. The waters continue to rise. Bless his heart, he's got to climb out the window and climb onto the top of the roof. He's standing on the top of the chimney. A helicopter comes, drops the rope down, grab hold of the rope. The waters are still rising. I, I, come on. 
He says, nope, I've prayed about it. I have faith in God. Go on. Helicopter flies on. Waters keep rising. He drowns. He goes to heaven. He says, God, I am so ticked at you. I prayed. I had faith in you. And you let me drown. And God said, why are you blaming me? I sent two boats and a helicopter. Science is God's tool, and there are problems. Sometimes science can win and can rescue. If you've got breast cancer, go to the doctor. I'm not saying don't pray about it, and we'll talk about that, and we'll talk about a God who can miraculously heal. But we're going to talk about what a miracle is. I'm just telling you, don't say, I'm going to pray about it and not use science. Science is God's tool that he gave us. It's, it's, it, is, it, is, it is something he brings to the table for us. We, man did not invent science. Woman did not invent science. It wasn't the kind of thing where God just made this world and all of a sudden someone in the Enlightenment woke up and said, Shazam, I think I'm going to invent science. Happy coincidence. It turns out that this is not a magical world after all. That I can use, hey, I can measure gravity. Wow. I invented, you know, I mean, Come on, do you think Einstein just stumbled upon the theory of relativity and that God didn't know it already existed? Did it surprise God? Did God say, holy smoke, E equals MC squared? I never dreamed when we made this planet that would happen. Whoa! And science is there. It's us discovering what God has put into this world. It's us doing the work of our humanity to understand, to look intelligently, shamar, to, 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 to keep what we're about. It is the, 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 it is the tool that we have to fight this monstrous disease of the fall. It's not a competition. The competition is not faith versus medicine or science. They're on the same side. Faith is what drives us to trust in science. Faith is what drives us to motivate and give purpose to our science. It's because we understand that this world was meant for more. That this world is meant for better. That we, 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 we struggle to determine ways to treat people with value. We want our, our people treated with the dignity that comes from being made in the image of God. They're not thrown away. The value of human life cannot be equated to a styrofoam package that packs a 
takeaway from a restaurant. So how do we deal with this? To me, that's what I want to unfold over the next couple of weeks. I want to unfold what it means theoretically, but I also want to unfold what it means practically. I want to unfold the theology so that we understand personal responsibility. And I think as we do that, we'll understand how faith and science go hand in hand. They're not in competition. They're on the same team. They are teammates. And when we understand that, we will live more responsibly. We will treat others more responsibly. We will continue to honor and appreciate the glory of God's creation, a.k.a. science, as well as beauty. And we will see that God is not guilty of fraud. That he is not the God of faith and anti-science. So, take action now. So, I've tweaked it a little bit. But it's really interesting. See, this lesson is the next logical lesson after our last three on good and evil and, and how God it can be God with good and evil. And, and the passages and the points for home are very similar because the two concepts flow naturally one to the next. First, I want to see the world truly. I want to see the world for what it is. I want to understand it's a fallen world. I know that thorns and thistles are the lot of humanity. But I have no trouble with the idea that science can teach us how to grow better crops. I have no trouble with the idea that irrigation can help us increase our, our, our produce. I think there's room for genetic work. But I think that there are lines that clearly have to be drawn and you've got to be very careful with this stuff if we're going to deal with it responsibly because humanity does not become God. So where these lines are blurred, Chinese doctor has just figured out how to alter the genetic structure for a newborn child, changing genes in the birthing process. To make a genetic alteration. Doctors are looking at making genetic alterations to create a, a, a humanity that's resistant to the AIDS virus. Where do we as Christians view all of this? Do we just not click on that story on the internet because, oh, that doesn't interest me? Well, it may not interest you today. But you will reach a point in your life where you are concerned about a health issue or a medical issue for someone you love or for yourself. And all of a sudden, you're going to draw attention to some of this stuff where you haven't before. And as Christians, we need to understand these things and we need to understand them from a biblical perspective because there are issues at play that are huge in our world around us. Science is growing exponentially not linearly. And it needs to be done responsibly. So I want to see the world truly. I don't want to be conformed to this world. 
I want to be transformed. I want my mind renewed so that I know the difference between what the will of God is and what it isn't. What's good and what's evil. What's acceptable, what's unacceptable. What's perfect, what's imperfect. I want to understand that. Paul told the Romans to get that, to pursue that. You and I need to do the same. Let's commit to doing it. Let's commit to learning this. Come back. This is not what you normally get because this is not easy stuff to teach. Pastor David would tell you this is important stuff, but it's not the kind of stuff that can fit into a 30-minute sermon. So if you're going to get it, you're going to get it in a place like this or you're going to get it from reading good material. You'll find this quicker. Next. I want to work for God's kingdom. Well, God's kingdom's coming. Right now the world stinks. I saw this bumper sticker, and this is in some people's vocabulary a little bit crude, so I apologize. I don't consider it that crude, but I didn't want my children necessarily to use it. But the bumper sticker, the idea with that caveat, I don't mind saying, it said, there is no gravity, the earth sucks. The idea just like, it's sucking us down into it, but also the, the, the expression of the world's not a great place all the time. And, and I saw that bumper sticker and I thought, okay, now here's the deal. The Lord's Prayer says we're to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So if we want God's will to be done here, we need to take those things that cause people to use those bumper stickers, that cause misery, that cause pain, and we need to try and handle it on earth. God says he's going to wipe away every tear from their eyes and death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. The former things have passed away. That is coming, but that's still what he wants us to do right here, right now too. To try to wipe tears, to try to comfort those grieving, to try to help those in pain, to try to help the hungry. That's our job. That's part of keeping this place. That's part of what we need to do is we struggle for God's good. That is, I was hungry and you gave me food. When you did it to the least of these, Jesus says, you did it to me. You're doing my work. The scientist who figures out how to power this planet without destroying this planet is the scientist who's doing the work of God. Who's using tools to help people have a better life. The food bank that's helping uh, support the charities and, the, the, and take food that would otherwise be wasted and, and take that food and pass it around so that people can eat or doing the work of God. Some of them don't even realize it. God can use a donkey. We need to take those people who think that this world is a bad place, and, for, and it is, and, and it does have moments where it's just wretched. But we need to struggle for God's good in the midst of that. And science and faith are teammates in doing that. James says, don't simply say to someone, Hey, I see you don't have any clothes, and I know you're hungry. I'm going to pray for you. Be warm and filled. Have a good day. Faith without works, he says, is barren. 
That's what he's talking about. He's not talking about how do you get saved. He's talking about how are you living on this earth. You need to get yourself in gear and do what God wants us to be doing. That's the teammate of faith. And that's where science and medicine come in from a biblical worldview. You with me? I'm excited to speak again about this. Can I bless you in the name of Jesus? Father, thank you so much for all that you've done, the tools you've given us, the resources you've given us. May we take them, Father, and fight for your good, fight for your kingdom, fight for your mercy, fight for your love, fight for your provision, fight for the underprivileged, fight for those who don't have, fight for those who are in hurt, fight for those who are mourning, fight for those who are scared, fight for those who are alone, fight for those who don't have the resources to fight for themselves. Father, may we be your hands and your feet and your love and your heart and your your provision. Give us the creativity, the ingenuity, the insight to use this world for your good and the good of your kingdom. That is our prayer in the name of Jesus. Amen. See you guys next Sunday.